ladies and gentlemen, we are live with the very first episode of The Voice of Neuro. This is the podcast that was inspired by, well, I listened to some podcasts and we did a survey, and it turns out that at least seven of you listen to podcasts on a regular basis. I know watching a Twitch stream and being in the chat is pretty energy and attention intensive, whereas a podcast can be listened to in the car as you run, as you walk around, do whatever. So this is a pretty cool way that we can build up the content in places that you're already consuming the content. I enjoyed podcasts very much on my drive from Texas all the way up to Washington. Shout out to Cobra Venom for linking me some Gary V content. He talked about a concept of having zero friction for the end consumer. So as we create content, there are different avenues that people consume content. That could be twitch.tv, that could be YouTube, that could be Instagram, and it could be podcasts. And I don't really listen to podcasts too much myself, but that doesn't mean that other people don't. So here we are with episode one, and we have our guest, our resident philosophy expert, Eche Fatoum this time. And we've done quite a few episodes in the past. Those are on YouTube. We may rip the audio from those and push them as podcasts. I'm not sure. That's going to be uh, to be determined. But this episode is going to be on mythopoetics, which is a nice academic way of saying the stuff that we learn from stories, basically. So welcome, Ajay Fatim. Hey. Hi, everyone. So cool. We've done sort of a older to newer trend in a lot of these philosophy discussions so far. Basically, the format here is I don't know too much about philosophy. I've read an intro to philosophy textbook, and I'm very interested in the topic, but I'm very novice. You've been on the path of studying philosophy for many years, so these are going to be more of a host-expert relationship rather than two philosophy experts duking it out. Not exactly a debate, more of a conversation discussion where we're trying to understand better how we think about the world and what's really going on in that capacity. So we have notes to follow along with. We can probably link those with the podcast or something. It's in the guest command here in the Twitch stream, so you can follow along if you desire. But with that, I think we're ready to take it away, sir. Yeah. So I want to say first off that the usual uh, Agent Smith disclaimer is true here as well. I'm not an expert on everything I'll be talking about. I prepared myself well in order to at least get the things I know I'll be talking about correct, but if there's any errors, please point them out in chat and we'll go from there. So, so we're starting off with some humility, that's good. Um, last time we talked about epistemology, which is the study of how we learn things, and there's three different aspects to the way we learn things. And it all started out with the stories we're being told. This is back when we were cavemen. We started telling each other stories. If you teach children um, how to behave in the wilderness, for example, you tell them what to eat, what not to eat, why not to eat it, why to be afraid of the saber-toothed tiger and how to react when they see one. So it's, it was essential for human beings to have stories to make sure we can survive. 
and stories went a long way from there. So there's different things that came into our stories that affected the way we see the world and see ourselves as well. And to kind of go through that and see how stories developed and how that changes our outlook is the goal of this episode. Well, so my initial reaction to that is it sounds like you're saying that oral traditions and storytelling are evolutionarily adaptive, meaning that in a state of nature, as hunter-gatherers in the wild with a bunch of dangerous elements all around us, using language to talk about situations, characters, and narratives helps us to build strategies to increase our odds of surviving different trials that we might face. Yeah. And within the context of epistemology, which we talked about, um, there's two different directions we can get knowledge from that developed much later, being rationalism and empiricism. Rationalism is um, we're trying to make sense of the world using our brains, um, just making logical deductions from how things work and how to make these leaps of faiths on what, what does it what does this mean and how do did we get here and empiricism which is the scientific study of things um, looking at empirical data to see how the world works and both of these can kind of go into stories we t- we tell each other but they're significantly different because they're more um, more direct approaches to, to think about the world while stories are just the kind of go around and we, we see what happened and then make a nice story out of it. Yeah, stories are more abstract. Rationalism and empiricism are based on logic and measurement respectively. So you're looking at specific quantities and rationalism, you're establishing specific chains of logic where stories oftentimes can break the laws of physics. You have supernatural aspects to them that oftentimes we can suspend our disbelief and we can gain valuable lessons from the story, even if we wouldn't say the story is entirely scientifically accurate. Yeah. Cool. So the goals of these lectures are understanding the stories and how they affect us, um, being aware of different ways on how to look at those stories, what they mean, what they tell us, um, then seeing how the medium of storytelling has changed over the years, like how the stories have changed, but also how the way we deliver them has changed. And also, as a nice takeaway for the viewers, we'll be talking about a lot of stories, and I'll try to explain many of them, just a a rough overview. And it should really serve as for you to get interested in reading those stories yourselves, because there are some really awesome stories that mankind has come up with over the centuries or millennia we've existed. And one thing that you were telling me as well leading up to this discussion was that 
this includes old stories and new stories. It's not just the classics that established a lot of legends and myths, but also the modern storytelling and the newer characters that we have uh, to give a little bit of anchor for how I relate to storytelling. I think one of the main characters that really caught my interest and inspired me as a kid was Batman. Batman was my favorite superhero when I was somewhere between four years old and like early teens. I just like the aesthetic of the character. I like his discipline and his dedication and also his courage. And I think one of the first situations I had where storytelling was used as a device to help me develop my behavior and my own perseverance through a difficult situation was my aunt and uncle, they got a new German Shepherd puppy and dogs grow pretty fast. It was probably around its full size, but it wasn't nearly as disciplined or respectful of other people and their boundaries as the older German Shepherds that they had. And I'm probably five years old this time, so I'm pretty small by human standards and stature. And I'm out in their backyard playing with the dogs. The other older dogs are really nice and they're not messing with me too much. But this younger dog is just super ornery. And he runs up to me and knocks me straight down by putting his two front paws kind of on my shoulders and I fall flat on the grass. And it surprised and alarmed me. And I was kind of getting in the realm of a little bit panicked by this dog and feeling like maybe this is really unsafe. But the dog didn't mean to harm me. It just didn't really understand how to respect people's boundaries and not jump on them and that kind of thing. And I go inside and I can't remember if it was my mother or my father. Kind of sounds like my dad would say. He said, um, oh, you seem like really stressed out or whatever, being knocked by this dog. What would Batman do in this situation? And Batman was my favorite character as a kid. And I knew that Batman goes into like dark places and fights the worst of villains in the city. And I thought to myself, well, Batman would get back up and he would be really brave and calm through the situation. And that basically just instantly reset my uh, focus and energy level and whatnot. So I wasn't panicked. I wasn't really scared. I just thought Batman would be courageous. Batman is my favorite. So I'm going to be courageous in this situation. Yeah, is Batman really not- real? Maybe not, but he helped me in that situation. <laughs> It's a really nice example of how we anchor our own story on other stories and look for reference on how to look at the world. Um, Yeah, so I wrote down three things that are for you to look out for as we talk about these different stories, um, you as the viewer. When we talk about these different myths, um, the first question would be, what function do they have on a personal and a social scale? Um, How does that function uh, relate to you? Is it relevant to you? And is this function served best by this story? And if you feel like it's relevant to you, it resonates with you, what, what does this mean to you going forward? Like, how would you change your own story based on the story you just heard? Um, 
Yeah, so we can start off talking about what are myths. And this is a bit ambiguous. There's no clear definition of what a myth is and what isn't. So for the sake of this episode, we just talk as myth of myths as being stories that have meaning. Um, a myth kind of does imply that it is made up, but that's not the definition of it. So a myth can be completely um, historically accurate and it's still a myth, although it's not likely that anything will be historically accurate. The way that we talk about it in Texas and in the West is you've got tall tales, where usually the tale was an actual event, but as it's being told, people tend to embellish certain details and exaggerate certain things so that the characters become more caricatures of the original people who were involved. So there's that kind of uh, story that's exaggerated a little bit that oftentimes we share even among our friend groups. It doesn't necessarily need to be a story that the whole world knows about in a household capacity. It could be one of your friends from school who did a thing and everybody knows about what happened and you tell the story. So that's sort of the local community level of storytelling. And then another concept that jumps out at me regarding this is the mixture of having real characters and then weaving a fiction with them. So I watched the television show Viking, so I'm not fully up to date with it, but they use a lot of real world historical Viking characters and some real events, and they weave a fictional show with a lot of these real characters and they try to imagine what these characters would do in this fictional capacity. But it's kind of that mixture of fiction and fact to create a story that is interesting and rich and has a lot of exciting characters and developments and that kind of thing. So myth versus a factual telling aren't mutually exclusive. You can have that spectrum of the most wild and ridiculous narrative that's totally made up versus the totally factual account of what happened and that can still be a story yeah um i'm trying not to spoil anything that is not at least 100 years old and i'm already gonna break that um that ideal when we talk about um vikings because i watched that too i've stopped watching it um, I want to say somewhere around season five. Just lost you. So anyone that still wants to see that, I'm going to spoil some things of it just to be able to talk about it. So at, at some point, the main character changes for reasons we're not going to talk about. And this was kind of the break for me with the series. I'm, I'm not, haven't been enjoying it as much afterwards. But what I found really interesting was, I think it was like at the end of season four where this happened. What show uh, is it again? Uh, Vikings. Okay. And we, we follow the main character, which is Ragnar Lothbrok. And he's this Viking king. And the way I saw it when I, when I first watched it was all these four seasons that kind of built up to the the fate of, of Ragnar were just this elaborate setup for 
this one episode which is just him talking to the king of a part of England, which is just an hour of a philosophical discussion, which I found really awesome and a really bold move by the creators. Yeah, that's a really good episode, I think. And I think we can delve into this a little bit without spoiling anything too much, but both of these characters are very powerful men in the story in terms of how they can command military forces and whatnot. I think they're both kings in their respective domains. And even after you've acquired this like physical power over your domain, there's also the quest for understanding intellectually and spiritually where do we fit in the grand scheme of things and what is the grand scheme of things and these two individuals are coming into this conversation from different parts of the world they're separated by water obviously but they're trying to compare their perspectives and seek the truth together and it seems like they both share that in common there's obviously a lot of violence and things that happens in the show and you wouldn't say that the two characters are perfectly good to each other all the time. There's betrayal and a lot of bad stuff that happens between them, but they do share that common purpose of wanting to know what's really going on. And I think that's a timeless quest for a human person in the world. We want to know what's going on. And everyone's coming from some personal bias of what people have told you is going on. We tend to learn about the world largely from reading what other people have written and listening to what other people have said. And people are fallible, so who's to say that you haven't been given information that's incorrect and your perspective is incorrect as a result? So this kind of a conversation by the two of them exchanging their side of the story, if they can be neutral and even-handed and logic-based, they can potentially come out of that conversation with a better understanding than they had when they went into it. And that's really, I think, the essence of storytelling and conversation which is you have a perspective, you tell your perspective and the other person does, you compare them and try to get a better total at the end of it. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Um, and yeah, as you said, they both had a fair amount of differences. They were fighting each other for the most part of those, I wanna say two to three seasons. But when they got together, forcefully so, they they dropped the act they they had this moment of humility and just talking about the the metaphysics of what they're doing and why they're doing things and why they think this or that to be correct and it's like the platonic dialogues it's not that they claim to be correct about this they just share their view on it and kind of see well this i i guess this is what got us here which is a, so, something that kind of got lost today where we we want to be correct, but it's not about being correct or incorrect. It's just about sharing your view on things for the other one to understand you. And for the most part, neither of them is correct. Another way you could put it too is we're striving to be more correct today than we were yesterday. Yeah. Which happens at least in in some regard i think in some regards we're also more wrong than we've been yesterday um and what i mean by that is that we're we 
tend to to narrow ourselves Your in with our thinking. A little bit there. Oh, am I back? You're back. All right. Yeah. What what I mean by that is that we we, we narrow ourselves through all those different biases we we already talked about, and we we really narrow our thinking. And while we think we might be more correct than we were yesterday we're probably not because our thinking got more rigorous and we we're not um we're narrowing down our thinking instead of open it opening it up and i think being as open as possible is the most correct way you can go Yeah, that kind of sounds like the notion that having a fresh pair of eyes when you're looking at a new thing has some value. You don't quite have the same entrenched bias as if you had specialized in it in some capacity, because as we learn, we don't take a complete route for that learning process. Usually there's a method and an approach that has some partial path and not a total and full path. So oftentimes a novice could pick up on something that an expert may end up being blinded to just by the way that they've focused their learning process. Yeah. Or as Confucius said, the gentleman is broad and not narrow in his knowledge. So you, you mm. want to have to know about as much as possible and not narrow yourself down to a specific path. Miyamoto Musashi said, touch upon all of the arts. Yeah, there's this lovely scene in um, Confucius where he he talks about um, the the different arts they had in in China at the time, and he thought, well, I, I, I'm being a bit narrow here, so I might want to take up charioteering, or maybe maybe um, handling a bow and arrow. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll just go and learn how to to shoot a bow. Which I'm not sure if it did or not. Yeah. Um, So, history, for the most part, has been oral history for millennia. The widespread of literacy as we have it nowadays started in the late 19th century when we started adopting to the the uh, Prussian school model which is to say that almost everyone got taught how to read and write for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. So almost everything that is innate to the stories we tell has been delivered orally. And oral history is not without faults, but it's... Um, a lot more accurate than you would think. So we're really good at keeping the stories as they are and delivering them to the next generation. So a lot of the stories we'll be hearing about or a lot of the older stories, they've been delivered for the most part as oral stories and then were written down much later on. Um, And one thing about historical myths is as they uh, are passed down by generations, they lose accuracy, but they gain in meaning. So uh, as we 
lose um, the specific dates or the specific place where something happens, we put a lot of meaning um, to kind of replace that accuracy. So we're, we get these elaborate ideas behind what the hero was doing or why was he doing it. And that's kind of um, what makes these stories specifically interesting because we we might not have the accurate account of what happened, but we have all these interpretation of what this could mean. It's kind of like the story is almost sculpted in a way that improves it for the listener or the reader over time. Yeah. Where for the news column, it may be less accurate, but the purpose of what is to be gained from delving into that story is improved. And a lot of that is about the essence of what the story is trying to convey, what the lessons are from the story, and what the character archetype is. Yeah. So I found some nice quotes on what a myth could mean and what myths are. So I'm going to read those to you. Um, Myths are origins. Myths are often stories of origin, how the world and everything in it came to be what it is now. Um, So a lot of the origin stories that we'll be looking at a bit later on, um, the myths explain how the world came to be and how humanity came to be, how we are, why we are, and how everything got here. And before the time of the scientific revolution, where we really got a understanding of how the world came to be, um, we had the Big Bang and the planets forming, all that kind of stuff. Um, this was our only source to know where we came from and why. Um, the whole Big Bang story never really answered the why. And to be a bit cynical about it, it's also kind of a myth. It's it's a oversimplification and this elaborate way to describe how the universe came to be without knowing why this happened and without knowing exactly how this happened. There was a lot of dark energy and dark matter involved, so we have no clue how that ever came to be. Which isn't to say it's faulty, but it's just, it's it's also just a story. You would say it's a work in progress as well. Science yeah. is chipping away at certain areas, and you could say that there are certain sciences that are more or less figured out and kind of set in stone. Stuff like Newtonian mechanics and a lot of chemistry, chemical equations, things like that. Things that are very close to home that we've been working on for centuries, as opposed to things like the Big Bang, things like abiogenesis, things like the origins of Homo sapiens and the other ape species leading up to that. It's really hard to collect information and evidence around these time periods, and you have to use a lot of different clues to figure out what's going on. And then also simulations in the case of physics and uh, cosmology and things like that, areas that I don't really know too much about. But yeah, you can say that there's still a lot of ignorance in those directions. There's the Big Bang, which is the past, and then there's also the future of the universe, what's going to happen to the Earth, what's going to happen to the sun and the solar system and the galaxies and things like that. And I think as thinking creatures, we really want to know what's going on and finding out the why is a really difficult 
quest for everybody. Why are you here? What brought you here? Why does humanity exist? And what can we do about it? Yeah, I think it's innately human to put meaning into things where there not necessarily is meaning. And it's kind of, we need something to hold on to. And in order to understand something, the universe has to have meaning, which is a specifically human thing to think. Uh, I don't think there ought to be meaning. I'm not saying there necessarily isn't, but just um, categorizing things into this has meaning, this has no meaning is specifically human. Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson said meaning is manufactured by the mind. Yeah. So a lot of times you make up that meaning as you go to make sense of reality and also just to create some shortcuts for yourself and some heuristics for decision making in your life. Because having some anchors of how you make sense of your surroundings has a lot of advantages just so you're not totally thrown and lost into the chaos of the universe. You do have some mental structure about how you fit into your environment yeah so the second one is myths are dreams sometimes myths are public dreams which like private dreams emerge from the unconscious mind which when we hear unconscious it's already obvious that this was freud talking um yeah so myths are the 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 kind of behind the scenes stories that, that we tell ourselves that they're the, they what make up the, the public consciousness or unconsciousness of how things are. And kind of relating to that or putting it in his own term was Jung when he said myths are archetypes. Indeed, myths often reveal the archetypes of the collective unconscious. He just lost his audio. He said, indeed, myths are often reveal the archetypes of the collective unconscious. Hello, are we back? Yeah, you just cut out. I read the Jung quote. All right, perfect. Um, yeah, not sure what to say about Jung and Freud. I think they were well, on to some interesting things to break it down real quick from the brain science perspective consciousness is a concept that is not strictly defined operationally by science we don't really know exactly where consciousness is we think it's in the nervous system a lot of it is in the brain in the brain tissue somewhere but we don't have a clear theory of mind of how the brain creates that structure of our reality uh, it's distributed over a lot of cortical tissue and a lot of times you'll have many different regions that are all working together to think about something. And each brain is unique, so that's happening in slightly different places, slightly different formats, and it's constantly changing. So basically this is uh, guessing at the difference between consciousness. Unconscious is an interesting choice of word here. Um, I think some of it can be broken down in terms of verbalized thought and thoughts that are almost more like urges or essences that we don't necessarily put into words directly. And a lot of these dreams and archetypes are kind of distilled elements of the flavors of our human existence and kind of boiling those down from the actual human who exists in the world to 
more of the base concepts that those things represent. Yeah, we talked about this last time already, where we, um, as language developed, we put a lot of abstraction into it. So the language we use today is really abstract. We have a lot of um, words and structures that are not something you could directly grasp, but as we were told these, you have a sense of what they mean. And the, the more abstraction we have in our language, the easier it is to talk about almost anything. But it's also you you lose the, the direct touch to it. You It's, it's all a bit um, superficial. And we'll be talking about that when we kind of look at the more modern um, interpretations of what philosophers thought about the nature of language or, or how we're looking at these stories. Um, so myths are metaphysical. Myths orient people to the metaphysical dimensions, explain the origins and nature of the cosmos, validate social issues, and on a psychological plane, address themselves to the innermost depths of our psyche. So, guess what you're seeing here is myths are everything, more or less. They, yeah, they, they break down a lot of human psychology. Yeah. Uh, myths are proto-scientific. Um, some myths are explanatory, being pre-scientific attempts to interpret the natural world. So most of the origin myths we have predate the scientific look at the world and trying to understand how it works on a database and just explaining the world out of the blue. And One example that comes out to me here is Descartes. Descartes, he made a lot of really good guesses at how the nervous system worked before we actually had the tools to confirm or deny that. So he yeah. talked about animal spirits being transmitted through the body that animated our movement, allowed us to be physical in the world and interact with it, which basically fits with the chemical and electrical signals we now know to drive a lot of that action. But at the time, it was basically his imagination of the story of how that happens rather than him strictly measuring it in the empirical sense. Yeah. Um, there's a really interesting question in chat I want to address. Um, what creates the wonder in the mind to find meaning? I think this has to do with our oral tradition and that we started to put meaning into things and we started to interpret story based on meaning. And from that developed our sense of, all right, if there's meaning in that, there ought to be meaning in this too. So there ought to be meaning in everything. So I think looking for meaning in the world or in ourselves is a learned social behavior. Sorry, you said it developed their sense of what? Uh... You dropped temporarily. I'm not sure. I'll just say the whole thing again. <laughs> um, how we developed, um, why we're looking for meaning is because we we are socially um, programmed to do so. Because as we had these stories 
that were told to us and were told that they had meaning. We started to looking for meaning in everything. And so looking for meaning is a socially learned behavior. I would potentially raise the notion that some of it is due to our cognitive capacity. So one of the things that distinguishes us in the animal kingdom is we have a very, very overdeveloped prefrontal cortex. So the area in the front of our brain where our brow is has a lot of executive function for building that picture of reality. And I think a lot of that highly advanced mental hardware sort of raises a lot of those uh, desires to seek meaning because one of our main edges is we can think about a situation we can plan and we can practice and we can improve our understanding of how everything works. We're a very uh, intellectual animal in that sense. We're not quite as strong and beefy and robust as some other similar animals that are in our sort of category. Like gorillas would be an example of creatures that are very physically strong and could definitely beat us in a cage fight. But with our ability to network with each other, understand how each member of the group can contribute and develop really advanced plans, we can be extremely successful to the point of <laughs> like being all around the planet at this point. Man, I love how you said that we overdeveloped our prefrontal cortex, implying that we took it a bit too far, which I tend to agree with. Well, it came at a few costs, so a little bit of biology notes if some people don't know one of the things we traded because the the body is an energy system right and you have to gain energy by acquiring food and you have to spend energy for different tasks and activities and one of the things that costs energy is breaking down the food that we eat and a key difference between us and gorillas using that same comparison is the length of our digestive tract we have a much shorter digestive tract of our small and large intestine compared to a lot of other apes. And the workaround there was we use our brain to develop uh, an understanding of how to use tools and we cook our food, which is a form of pre-digestion. So we've traded some other strengths that other animals have for a different strength in how our brains have developed and how they spend energy. Because the brain is an extremely expensive organ in terms of how much energy it burns to do all of its cognitive work. So you have to take that from somewhere. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that we, we built the capacity to do more thinking over tool use and over um, farming, for example, where we just um, took away a lot of other things that we ought to do during the day in order to be good thinkers, which I think has turned out rather nice for us. Um, still wondering whether or not humans have been around long enough in order to prove that intelligent is a good concept in a evolutionary sense. So if at some point for better or worse will be gone, which, by which I mean uh, humanity will be gone from at least this planet, if not from the universe as a whole. And I wonder if, if we proved intelligence as we know it and really being able to 
to build upon the world and to shape it to what we would like it to be if that is a um a concept that is working in a um evolutionary sense or if it's just a self-defeating purpose i kind of think of it in terms of the role-playing stat sheet where intelligence is a stat it doesn't have morality attached to it but it increases the capacity in certain ways so if you're more intelligent you can do certain things that involve the use of that stat much like charisma which is also an edge being more charismatic does not necessarily mean you're a good person but it does improve your capacity to influence the people around you so intelligence is knowledge is power knowledge can be used for good or for evil is knowledge good eh, it's a resource that we can spend either wisely or foolishly i think yeah yeah i was looking at it not in a moral sense but more so imagine um evolution being the the player of, of the game and keeping those stat sheets um it invested in intelligence a lot and running the game now and so my question would be would evolution choose to invest into intelligent in their next build again yeah well a problem there isn't evolution isn't self-aware it's a process that shapes things basically the things that are the more uh, successful at reproducing are going to uh, advance the most which We've basically hit a critical mass and we're kind of at the overpopulation stage right now. So is that correct? Is it not correct? It's what we have to work with right now. I think one of the problems is because we've been so successful in developing our economy and our production, we're now reaching the point where we have to think about managing the entire planet. So instead of being stewards of a hunter-gatherer village that has maybe uh, half a dozen to a hundred people or so we have billions of people and we're drastically uh, affecting our surroundings in a big way so stuff like the composition of the atmosphere the water and the land and things are being shifted by our actions and we have to think about how we can be responsible managers of the resources that are around us yeah I was not trying to imply that um, development has this teleology where it know where it's going, but it's. I find it interesting to to see whether or not intelligent is success um, will have success in the long run. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing really well, and will probably continue to do so unless there's major shifts in the biosphere. Yeah, there's a quote from Kukio, the, I don't know if he's quoting it from someone else, but he used to say that change happens when the pain to remain the same becomes too great. And a lot of these modern problems that we've created by our success in our rapid expansion don't hit everyone directly in their day-to-day -day lives. So for the day-to-day -day person, there isn't really too much that is motivating them to change their behavior. And then we also have some problems of scale where we can do 
really massive things in a specialized capacity like shipping across the oceans and trucking and things like that. So it's an interesting concept where we're in a very different stage of development that there isn't precedent for. There aren't other animals that we can look to and say, well, they developed their intelligence civilization to this point and it impacted the planet this way. So we can learn from that. We're basically learning as we go. And I think as experiences developed, we're making the mistakes and then learning from those mistakes. Yeah, that's a really interesting quote from Kukio. Um, and it reflects what we know from social development, um, where big social change has only happened when things were going really wrong. Things like the American or the French Revolution happened for the most part on the back of people not having enough food and just things going really bad, which um, puts an interesting light on future social development because I think we've got the um, let's make enough food part down to a T. So it's unlikely that we'll have as big a shift in the social structures as we used to have just because we can at all point make sure that people are not necessarily happy but at least well fed yep maslow's hierarchy of needs hit the low ones before you get to the high ones it's hard to think about your meaning and purpose in the universe if you're starving and you just want to have some food to eat and we definitely have the capacity we just need the distribution I think he's like semi-dropped. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand by. Lost connection. Yeah, it'll rejoin. What's a what's a fun story that I was thinking about recently? I see in the notes he's going to talk about anti-heroes later on. I was thinking about some of those that jump out at me. I recently purchased a bunch of posters and stuff for my new apartment, and I got a Deadpool one. And a Venom one as well. Those are both. Oh, I also have Illidan. So I have a bunch of different anti-heroes and stuff. I think sometimes the basic heroes can get a little bit dry and simple. We're in a really thick superhero meta, I think, in 2019. With the Marvel Universe and all, and DC does stuff still. There's like Spider-Man stuff getting done over and over again. So they're diamond dozen superheroes and stuff. So this is going to be a brief intermission here. And we're back with Mytho Poetics. Um, where were we? So we did myths are metaphysical, and there was a very lofty explanation of that. <laughs> Pre-scientific attempts to interpret the natural world. We talk about Descartes. Uh, myths are sacred histories. I don't know if we tackled that one yet. No, we didn't tackle that one yet. So um, religious myths are sacred histories. And so this will be the disclaimer that some people might disagree with when we're talking about um, origin stories like the Bible as being myths because people have this notion of myths being made up stories and if you believe the bible to be literally true then it's not a 
um, a made-up story, but it is the real story of how the world came to be. But since we're talking about myths as just stories, stories with meaning, I think it's fair to say we don't have to um, look out for um, hurting people's feelings when we talk about sacred stories in terms of being uh, part of the mythopoetic. Yep, that's a good point to make. One thing that I <clears throat> have done in my kind of personal introspection about different belief systems and whatnot, and I was raised Christian, was sometimes being able to entertain cases where you could take a case where the Bible is factually true start to finish, and you could reason your way through situations given that case, and then you could also take the case that it is fictional and reason through it that way. And ideally, you can carry a conversation with someone, even if you don't necessarily agree on which case is true. You can entertain that and then build off of it and get a better perspective of how the two of you think and potentially, as we were saying before, leave the conversation with a better understanding than you started with. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the last one, myths are stories. Myths are both individual and social in scope, but they are first and foremost stories. And I think that's the best description we have for what myths are in the context of what we're, we will be talking about. Mm -hmm. So there are different types of myths and for the most part the, the stories we tell each other are a mixed bag of these types so there's no clear distinction between what's a explanatory or a creation myth if the main character is a hero, an anti-hero, or even a villain. But it's it's good to kind of know these different aspects of what a story is telling to understand it. So the, I want to say the most fundamental one, which is probably not the case in a sense of what we get meaning from, but the most fundamental one, since it explains how the world came to be, are creation myths. And I think we touched upon this last time, the creation myth as it is seen in Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. um, is one day Ashura Mazda decided to make different creations after just being in the void. So he shaped the sky out of metal, um, shining and bright. Second, he made the pure water. Third, um, he made the earth flat and round with no mountains and valleys. Um, kind of love how he covered both fronts on the earth being both flat and round. So there's not no flat earther or no one that thinks the earth is a globe can disagree with that it's both flat and round which is kind of nice it's inclusive <laughs> <laughs> um so then he went on and create animals and human beings and in Zoroastrianism, it's always this battle between uh, ashura masta and being the all good all powerful and um, Ariman, which is the all bad, kind of somewhat similar to the devil. And 
after his creation, um, Ashura Master went to Araman and asked him, well, will you help me with this? And he said, no, I'm going to destroy it. And so they, they had this battle about the world. And when Araman tried to destroy the earth, for example, he, he made um, hills happen or he, he just, he, the, the battle between them is what shaped the earth. This is the the origin story of the world as we have it in Zoroastrianism. And I found a really nice version of the creation of Earth as it is in the Bible, but it's not the, the version that is um, when we start out the Bible. I think the first couple of phrases are on the creation of Earth. But this is the the story of Zoroastrianism retold. And it's part of um, Genesis. So towards the end of the first part of the Old Testament, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, the great fish in the sea. And in the words of the Agadah, this refers to the Leviathan and its mate. For he created the male and female, and he slew the female and salted her away for the righteous in the future. For they would propagate the world could not exist because of, of them. So here we have a, a similar story of the Leviathan, which is the, the evil, the sea monster, and the... Uh -oh. Behemoth, which is the um, Earth monster. You lost you and you're back, I think. If there were not this battle between them, the Earth could not exist because both of them had to be gone for the the world as we know it to, to be. I think we just lost you for a little bit, but there's a Leviathan version of the Bible creation myth we caught some of and i know the god created the earth in seven days and rested on the seventh day six days making humanity stuff like that yeah there's a creation myth that isn't in your list here in the notes that i think about quite a bit because i read a couple times is the tolkien lore myth and his lord of the rings hobbit and silmarillion sort of universe yep. and he drew a lot from existing myths especially uh, anglo-saxon myths and norse mythology i think those were the main ones he gained inspiration from for those but as we've said so far with the storytelling you'll have character archetypes that emerge that you can compare to other things like zoroastrian comparing to god and the devil of the bible um, you've got the angels and sort of the pantheon within Tolkien lore as well. What is the Discworld? I don't know what that is. Um, that's Terry Pratchett. And it's, um, he wrote, I don't know how many books, like 30 books within this fictional Discworld, which they're really funny for the most part. They're kind of, um, how to say that? It's, cynical 
um, high fantasy. Mm -hmm. So he, he he's really looking at the fantasy world and describing it in real world world terms and just making this weird kind of leaps of faith. So it's really funny. I really enjoy that. And we'll be talking a bit about the the heroes he have within this world later on. Um, so the creation of the disc world is the world turtle Atween is um, flying through space. And on the back of the turtle, there's four elephants and those four elephant hold up the world that is a disc on the back of their shoulders. Which sounds like a really weird made up story. But it turns out this is a, an Indian myth that was first recorded in, I want to say, 1200s. So it's also based on an existing myth on how the world came to be or how it how it's shaped. Cool. Um, yeah, I think we already talked about the Big Bang. Um, so different from creation myths, there are explanatory myths and they don't necessarily talk about how the world came to be, but explain um, different aspects of it. And one really nice example is the Divine Comedia. Are you familiar with this, Nero? Divine Comedy. Yeah. The Dante? Yeah. Yeah. So it's the story of Dante as he goes through the seven circles of hell, purgatory, and finally goes into heaven. And it's really graphic in its descriptions of how hell works. And it shaped a lot of the um, ideas of medieval people on what to expect when they die, if they go to hell, that is. Mm which was probably very common based on their belief system. Um, I'm not sure on the numbers. Um, one really interesting aspect in there is when um, Dante enters hell, he first gets to into um, this. It, it's not purgatory, but it's like the the front room to hell, where it's not hellish in its nature, but it's just a waiting room for things to happen. And he it's in the lobby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's the lobby of hell. And he meets all these um, thinkers, um, Plato, Aristotle. No, you lost him again. You said the lobby of hell, and then you cut out again, but it sounds like you're back. All right. Um, so in the lobby to hell, he found all these ancient thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, Confucius. I'm not sure if he's mentioned, but he probably would be there. And they were all good people. But um, faithfully for them, they had the quote unquote wrong belief. So they were not able to, to get into heaven. So they were all um, gathered there and had conversations and had a comparatively good time to the people that were within these um, circles of hell. And to sorry. kind of expand on this, I think one of the aspects that makes this important for how people think about the afterlife is it creates uh, 
more of a fitting proportion to punishment and crime. So the idea of heaven and hell, I think, is if you live in the way that you're supposed to by the gods, then you're rewarded. And if you don't, then you're punished. But it breaks it down where if you lived a worse life, you're punished more by having a worse circle of hell versus if you lived a better life, you're punished less. So this lobby you're talking about is basically the the least level of punishment, if you could even call it a punishment given such good company. And I think that uh, it makes people feel better than just everyone is thrown into a lake of fire if they don't make it into heaven. Maybe yeah. some people were fairly unoffensive. They just kind of did their job and tried to be a good citizen and all this, but maybe they didn't pray the, to the correct gods. So it doesn't seem fair to me that they should be in pain for all of eternity for that just because they didn't sign up for the right church or whatever so yeah. i think this myth expands upon the idea of hell and gives people a a more fitting and intuitive and fair sense of what incremental punishment might be like in the afterlife yeah yeah totally agree with that and from reading it and it's um it's not a story I would recommend to read fully to people, but it's a story to, that is really worth looking into the the system it explains and how it explains. Like the the seven circles of hell are all based on the seven deadly sins, and there's always a punishment that kind of fits the crime so a good example would be fortune tellers in hell um, walk through hell backwards so they never see what's in front of them or there's gluttonous people that just get overfed forcefully kind of like homer when he is in hell and gets um, fed all those donuts until there are no more left And yeah, it, it has some really neat concepts in it, and it's a a beautiful read in Italian. I'm not sure how the translation works, and my Italian is not good enough to to just dive into it since it's still, for the most part, this ancient kind of medieval Italian, which is doesn't make it any easier to read. Mm. Um. Another good example of an explanatory myth is The Founding of Rome by Romulus and Remus, which are the two kids that were thrown away at birth and were raised by a wolf and that came to be the founders of Rome. And then I think Romulus killed Remus and reigned over Rome happily ever after. Or at least this is how the story goes. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's an exploratory myth we already talked about and this is um, the worldview of Aristotle and he kind of explained the world as being these four elements earth, water, air and fire that are kind of layered on top of each other so earth is obviously heavier than water that's why there's always earth underneath the water when you go by the sea. Sometimes you have to dive a little bit deeper, but there's always earth underneath it. So on top of the layer of earth, there's the water surrounding it. 
above that is the air and surrounding everything. So out in the atmosphere, there's a big layer of fire that surrounds all of this. I think we know this not to be true by now. On the other hand, when you see a, a rocket start or entering the atmosphere, there's you always fire surrounding it. So there might have been something Earth, air, that. fire, water. I immediately thought of Korra or uh, Avatar. Um, it's really lore. interesting how we've he seen Avatar last airbender. like a tree being a mixture between Earth and water. So that's why it's obviously above the Earth. And it's just. He was able to explain everything within the terms of these four elements, which is a really neat thing to do. Mm -hmm. You cut out briefly, but I immediately thought of the Avatar universe, which it uses those same four elements for bending. You've got earth bending, water bending, air and fire, and you're manipulating those elements as a sort of superpower. But it's cool that that's kind of inspired by the four elements of Aristotle. I had a question about one explanatory myth that's a modern one. The Matrix is a narrative that we're in a simulation, which I think is its own kind of philosophical question and scientific possibility. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the first really big landmark cultural pieces that puts that in front of the eyes of the public and helps us to consider, like, what if we were part of some large computer is this actually the reality that we're in or is this a simulation before that i don't think it was considered as often but yeah. technically it's possible it's definitely possible uh, looking at it from a mathematical point of view it's a lot more likely than we're in a simulation because there can only be one base reality and one base reality can make infinite simulations so the chances are one to infinity that we're in a simulation which is a bit of pseudo-scientific, I'd say. I, I understand the, the rationale behind it, but I, I think it's it's a bit oversimplifying things. Um, but it's a really interesting question um, whether or not we're in the matrix or we're in the real world. Um, but the, the big question for me would be, what, what's the difference? Like, Imagine you have the possibility to choose between the red pill or the blue pill. You, you get to realize that you're in the matrix. This all is just made up rather than just being blissfully ignorant about it. Um, my question would be, what would you change knowing that nothing of this is real? Yeah, would you take more risks? Would you live your life differently if you knew that was the case? It's an interesting question. And I'd say this is, as far as we know, as real as it gets. So if you would live your life differently in the matrix, knowing that it is the matrix, you might, sh you should consider changing your life in the real world because it, it's the one existence that you're given, as far as we know, and making the most out of it is, I guess, the best way you could go about it. Mm-hmm. With, with some disclaimers about being ethical and all. <coughs> um, then there's functional myths, which are 
somewhat similar to explanatory myths, but they, they serve a specific function. And one of the myths that is in the Bible, as well as in many other religious texts, is the, the, rational, the rationale behind the superiority of men, why we're allowed or um, even forced by nature to subjugate all animals and all of nature, which is something that is somewhat under threat these days where we think that we ought to treat animals in an ethical way too and we might not be as superior about them as we were told to be. But it, it make, made a lot of sense um, when we have the development from um, being hunter-gatherers and being within the... the um, what's the word for it? The food the, chain? No, no. Um, the, the belief system that everything has its own spirit and mountains have spirits and every animal has spirits and everything has meaning, everything has a, a life of its own, to kind of abstract that to be like, well, they might have a life of its own, but still we're superior. So we just um, we use everything as we see fit. Uh, and it's, the, it's a leap of faith that kind of... Um, makes it ethically correct to to um put animal in cages so and to, to farm the land which was kind of counter to to the prior beliefs your audio cut a little bit there but the thing that we've talked about in some previous episodes here is the superiority of man oftentimes results in people considering themselves to be not animals but something above that and something different in the modern capacity, our lifestyle is very different from the state of nature of being out in the jungle or on the savanna or wherever and trying to hunt stuff and gather things and survive. So it's, I think, relatively easy to fancy ourselves superior in that way, even though if you take a really good look on the human form, I mean, we poop as well. We're also <laughs> scared by stuff. We have emotions and we often act in irrational ways that are evolutionarily adaptive but not you could say suited for mathematical precision yeah um the way aristotle put it when he kind of made the uh, a map of different types of animals um and yeah animism was the word i was looking for thanks everyone in chat pointing that out um he put different kinds of animals based on how they perceived the world. So there were um, non-perceiving animals, there were perceiving animals, and humans are both perceiving and thinking, so we're rational animals, which is a bit of a stretch that we're irrational, but it's, it's a good distinction to make from other beings that are that don't develop this same kind of um, brain functions where they can really look at the world in an abstract way and derive meaning from it, for better or worse. There is still the open question, too, of what, say, the introspection of some of the higher order animals looks like. We're discovering more and more about how different animals communicate with each other and how they perceive identity. Many of them understand how they exist as an individual in the group. They don't use language in the same way, so 
they obviously can't explain their reality the same way that we would or maybe think about it uh, verbally internally as we do but they do have some perspective they can experience emotions they can develop friendships things like this and we're still trying to find out what overlap we have with the cognition of other animal species because it is quite a bit yeah and the other functional myth that we kind of went into when we talked about confucianism and buddhism to to some regard are the kind of stories we tell each other that uh, enforce the um rituals we're having within society or as a, a person mm-hmm. which is um yeah we have these stories telling us for example how to do a proper tea ceremony in japan which is not based on how you ought to do things but it's just a, a social um we decided upon this being right and a lot of myths um kind of turns towards this where it's not it's not something we can um grasp rationally but it's just that we took that leap of faith of this being right some examples that come to mind with enforcing ritual would be bible stories about characters praying to God in certain situations and shifting the circumstances in the favor of the group. So it's building the power of prayer in the minds of the people who believe this um, system and you could say format of the world and whatnot, and how oftentimes there are adaptive elements to this, say prayer as an activity is a kind of introspection reflection on where you are, what outcome you're striving for, what difficulty you're facing, and how you find courage in those trials and tribulations in your life. Yeah. So then there are the the different kinds of um, protagonists within stories. Um, So there's- Hero myths. you know, myths about heroes, anti-heroes, or even myths about the villain. And I want to say, did I drop out? You did, and I tried to pick up where you left off with the hero myths, Gilgamesh, Odysseus, and Discworld. All right. So I I wanted to say first that there are these three different types of characters, um, hero, anti-hero, and villain. And in most myths, they kind of blend together. We have some people that are more on the end of a hero and others that are more on the end of a villain. Um, One recent um, media that really plays with this is Breaking Bad. Have you seen this? I've seen enough to be familiar with the character. Yeah. The main character, I think, is who you're talking about. Exactly. So we have this... Um, the whole story of Breaking Bad is about the hero's journey of the main character. And he starts out as a somewhat of a hero and um, for the most part turns full villainous by the end of the season or the, the series. 
which is a really interesting way to look at a personal story on how the protagonist develops. Um, so to kind of make the distinction between what's a hero, what's an anti-hero, and what's a villain, um, heroes are those um, protagonists in the story that are good, that are brave, that they just they incorporate all the um, good traits that we one could have as a protagonist. And the anti-hero has some of the good traits, but also some of the bad traits. So he might not be as brave or he might not be morally upright, but he's still the, the person we're rooting for reading the story. And the villain obviously incorporates all the bad traits and it's for the most part the, the character we're rooting against when we read the story. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of hero myths, there's some really famous and super old ones. Um, the story of Gilgamesh being one of the oldest stories we know and it's really awesome to read. Not the original text, but at least the, the, the synopsis of what Gilgamesh did and how he did it. And there's a lot of um, commentary on what Gilgamesh meant and, and how it's to be interpreted. And the one interpretation I like most is Gilgamesh is this all-powerful being. Um, not, maybe not all-powerful, but he's, he's this godlike figure among men so he, he he could do everything he wanted to do but he's always questioning um what he should do so the arguably most important character within the gilgamesh story is not gilgamesh himself but his friend enkidu that just questions the decision gilgamesh is making and telling him well you probably should not do this this is a bad idea. And Gilgamesh is like, yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway. And Enkidu, the good friend he is, will stay with Gilgamesh through the wrong decision he's making. Uh, wrong in quotes. Uh, and will be there afterwards. Well, I told you, but we kind of got over it. So I guess it's okay. So the, the Gilgamesh story really is a story about friendship and it's a story about listening to other people. Yeah, I think it also highlights the difference between raw power and wisdom in decision-making and how being really powerful and capable as a character doesn't necessarily mean that you have good understanding of what's going on or you always do the right thing. Yeah. Then there's the hero myths we have from the Greeks, being um, the Iliad, and I'm not sure how the story of Odysseus is called in English. Um, Iliad? That's a different, it's two different stories, but it, it, they, they kind of boiled down to the same thing. So it, it's- The Odyssey? Ah, uh, the Odyssey, exactly. Um, they're 
stories of heroes, and these are capital H heroes. So they're the the main character, both in a sense that they are most important, um, up to the degree where at some point, um, I'm kind of blanking on the name. I think it's Odysseus that um, his ship um, breaks and he's just all by himself in the water and not knowing what to do. And the story goes, well, poor Odysseus, he's just all by himself now, neglecting everyone else that was on the boat that obviously died at this point. So they were not important. Since this is a hero myth, it's about the hero, it's all the other characters that surrounded Odysseus on the ship, they were not important. So we have to feel bad about Odysseus that is still alive and lonely, but not about the people that died because they serve their purpose. Which is a, an interesting way to look at things. And this is where um, the story of Zoroastrianism um, comes back and is really the change in how we look at the world. Because in the story of Zoroastrianism, it's this battle between um, Ashura Mazda and Ariman, and they're battling out between good and bad, and what you do, your decisions make a difference. You are the hero in that story, and that's for everyone. It's not just those chosen by the gods to be heroes, but it's everyone whose decision will make a difference, which is something a lot of people over time can relate to and again coming back to why we want to put meaning into things if we're just the side characters in the story of the hero it, it doesn't give us the feeling that we should do anything different but if what we do matters and the kind of decision we take will make a difference in this grand scheme fight between good and evil it, it puts a lot more emphasis on how we decide well, that sounds like the struggle for significance. Yeah. We want to be a significant part of the overall story, oftentimes. Yeah, if, if we're just a side character, we, we might as well just um, die off when the uh, ship is sinking. But if we're the hero of our own story, we should be struggling for survival as Odysseus did. Mm. And... Yeah, there's a, a really nice hero myth from the Discworld um, that I want to tell. So it's the, the main character, and I think it's in one of the first two or three books. I'm, I'm not sure where. The main character is somewhat of an anti-hero. He lacks courage. He lacks strength. He's this um, seeker of knowledge. He just walks through the world and tries to understand it and tries to have fun on the way. And he runs into the hero character or a hero character, which you can imagine as being someone like, um, what's the name? Um, like this, this really big figure, uh, strong with a lot of courage. And so he's a hero. And the two of them get trapped together um, in a dragon's lair, I want to say. It, it's, yeah, doesn't matter. So anyways, they're trapped in this dungeon. And the, the 
anti-hero character asks the hero, so, all right, we're, um, this is a itchy situation. Um, how are we going to get out of this? And the hero says, well, so this is how it's going to go. You pretend to be ill and the guards will come in. I'll knock down the guards. Then we get out of this room. I'll punch down some other guards. I'll slay a dragon, uh, rescue a princess, find some treasure, and then we're out of here. And the anti-hero is a bit startled by this. And like, how could you possibly know that? And the hero is, well, I'm a hero. This is what heroes do. We rise to the occasion. Exactly. And this is like the, the inversion of the hero story where the, the hero is already aware of what it means to be a hero. So he just has to live out his life based on what a hero ought to do, which is really funny. I think it also speaks to positive delusions. The idea that sometimes <coughs> finding courage involves believing that you can accomplish something, even if you don't have evidence that you're going to accomplish that. So you could do the math on what the odds are that they're successful. But if their only option is to try, then the odds don't really matter as much. And it's more about using the skills you have to try and achieve the end that you desire. Yeah. Um, then there's um, anti-hero myths. So where the, the character is a bit more flawed than the, the normal hero. Um, one really good example of this, uh, in my opinion, is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where you have the, the story of Hunter S. Thompson, or Raul Duke as he's called in, in the book, which is just a, um, an alter persona of Thompson. Um, that goes to report in Las Vegas on this, um, I think it's a motorcycle um, race. And he does all kinds of drugs on the way there and while he is there and never really watches the race. And it's just, he, he goes on about all the things that you shouldn't go on about when trying to report on that race. But... When you, when you read what Thompson wrote on the race, it's really interesting that the way he describes things in terms of their meaning more so than what actually happened, which is what kind of made his writing style and why he became so famous, which is writing about something completely different, but still making it relatable to the subject and making it interesting to read. The first quote that always come to mind with that is, we can't stop here. This is bad country. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a I think of that when movie. I play Mutas in StarCraft. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one you're probably familiar with is the anime Death Note. Yep. And the main character there, Yagami Light, is obviously trying to do good with somewhat of a messed up moral code depending on what kind of morality you, you subscribe to so he's doing a lot of questionable stuff in his pursuit of good and he's definitely not all too aware of himself and his own pitfalls so he he's 
willing to do good and he pushes everything to do good but doesn't question himself well is this really what is good and the whole series kind of plays out between um him as the anti-hero and then there's a hero character that ha uh, subscribes to a different ideology of um how to act morally which is not necessarily more true either and it's kind of the play out between the two which is really interesting a really nice anime yeah it also touches on the concept of whether intelligence is generally speaking good because both the hero and the anti-hero in this are treated as kind of genius characters in the world and the death note is basically a super powerful notebook that allows him to kill whoever he wants and he's a a young kid and i think a lot of times a young adult has a bunch of fire about how they would like the world to be but they lack the wisdom and experience of seeing the big picture in the world and you kind of get to see how those different ingredients mix together in this character who doesn't quite have the long-term vision but has a lot of that immediate term fire and takes a bunch of initiatives and those experiences end up shaping him as a person. So the takeaway as a viewer for me is being aware of how the decisions you make shape you as a person. Every decision counts. And over the course of many, many decisions, you can have really drastic changes to who you are fundamentally as a person. So trying to reflect along the way is really valuable. Yeah. Um, there's a question in chat whether or not we'll be revisiting these characters. Um, so I want to just give a rough breakdown of different kind of myths and different kind of characters and some other ways of interpreting it. And then we're going to have a big segment where we just talk about different stories. You can bring up um, stories you'd like to talk about in chat and we just go a bit more in depth on, on specific things. But since there are so many stories and so many different myths, we, we can't go in depth on all of them. So we just have to pick and choose and kind of explain, um, explain our way through them. But we can touch on many of them. Um, and he's probably gonna reconnect. So the last so. one is the villain. And the villain is... This is the first episode of the podcast. Arguably the, the first attempt. It's not always the best and the most polished. You're just back now after disconnecting. Uh, what was the last thing I said? Something about there are many different characters that we can touch on. There's not quite enough time to do a yeah. hour-long discussion about every individual character. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of different characters before we, we talk about some other things is the villain, which is arguably the easiest character to portray since he's just all evil, which is oversimplifying things a little bit. But there's some good... Um, examples of villain stories and the significance they have for us for understanding the world. Um, Richard III from Shakespeare is a really good example. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Westworld, the series. No, I'm not. So it's a really interesting stories and they have this um it's in a western setup but it's this kind of matrix like western setup and when you enter it you have this um selection of hat 
So you can either pick a white hat or a black hat, which kind of sets you up for the person you're being. And they're making a bit fuss out of what hat people select, which is really funny. Hmm. And you have obviously people that choose a black hat will be the ones to look out for within that world. Is it a cowboy hat? That's what I'm imagining. Yeah, a cowboy hat. Okay, good. Um, then there's a, a fairly um, newish um, villain story that I find really interesting. And it's the story of Ferranas and Elizabeth Holmes. Are you familiar with this? No. Um, so Elizabeth Holmes started a tech company when she was 19 years old and they do um, blood sampling on a big scale and they advertised as being able to do 200 tests on their small machine which turned out not to be true and they they um, got indicted for misleading their investors and misleading um, clientele and faking medical results so it, it's uh, it's been a really big story and she's obviously the villain within it so she was the one that misled everyone and pushed the kind of narrative that they're already there although it's um it obviously wasn't the case so she's the this um villain within the story which is also kind of i think that she's definitely villainous in a lot of things she did but the aim she was looking for was um one of a hero where she was trying to to revolutionize medicine and she was trying to make it um easier to to detect sickness and it was um cheaper for people to to get that kind of blood um blood work done so it was a um it was a good pursuit she had but she kind of fell off the wagon along the way that sounds like having the right idea but using the wrong means and that can make you into a villain yeah as we talked about in one of the previous sessions the ends aren't known ahead of time they're only the means of how you're taking steps in the present moment yeah. so that's really what defines you as a hero or a villain and another example that kind of goes into the same realm is uh, Martin Shkreli. Um I think you talked about him before. The um, pharmaceutical investor that raised the price of life-saving drugs a couple of thousand percent just because he could. And the um, insurance companies were forced into paying for it. So it was a good move business-wise, although a bit questionable in terms of ethics. And he got a lot of shit for that, I think, um, deservedly so. And he, he's obviously the villain within this story. And interestingly, when you look at it from the outside, it's he as a villain is really bad but the effect it had and the the impact it had on the industry he is a villain miss greedy he desires material wealth Hello? and riches rather than to be set into the legends as a champion of the people i think there are some other scientists to contrast that who say developed maybe a polio vaccine and different vaccines and scientific and medical advancements that they didn't try to monetize 
for themselves, which you could say part of the American dream is acquiring more material possessions. I think that's also a general human desire for a lot of people. So you can understand that desire, but the context of where that resource is being acquired matters a lot. And this specific example is making it more difficult for other people to survive for his benefit, which usually you would consider a, a villainous action. Yeah. So, so the story as it's told is him as being the villain. But when you look at the story from an outside perspective, it's him doing bad things really increase the dialogue we have about what price should uh, life-saving drugs have and arguably had a good effect um, afterwards that were this is more out in the open we know a lot more about what's happening behind the scenes when it comes to drug pricing so it's arguably had a good effect even though what he did was bad mm -hmm. so it's it's the basically the complete opposite of the story of Elizabeth Holmes where the aims were good and the result were bad. His aims were bad, but the result was arguably good or had some good implications. Mm -hmm. There are also some different villain elements that jump out at me that I have some examples <coughs> of. So certain villains are really, really evil to the point where as part of the story, it's very difficult to follow what they're doing because it it puts a bad taste in your mouth. And oftentimes they're doing things that real people have done. So there's an element of realism to these wicked actions and things like that. Uh, 13 Assassins is a movie like that where the villain is so awful and sick and wicked that you're really upset seeing everything that he does over the course of the film, which builds some tension in just how you feel about it and also makes you cheer for the heroes more than if the villain was more of a mixed bag. Is he really a bad person or not? It makes it very clear for the listener or the viewer that this is a very bad person who needs to be removed from this equation, as opposed to some more Disney kind of villains, which fill the slot of the villain, but it's, it's more of a playful kind of cackling mad scientist character who's doing something sort of silly, but it's not really foul and disgusting in the way that offends us and makes us hate the villain. Sometimes we love the villain and we think they're hilarious and we still gain some moral value of what the hero is doing without necessarily having that like really gritty um, friction of what the villain is doing and us wanting them really to lose. Yeah. Um, I want to address something in chat. Um, Balaron said that Sauron is evil and has no redeeming qualities. That might be so. I'm, I'm not sure about what he's all about. But when I um, read Lord of the Rings or a bit after the fact, I started really to feel for the orcs and how they're just this um, suppressed minority and they're trying to do an uprise to kind of gain the... Um, the standing in society that they deserve but being pushed down by humans and uh, and elves that was really difficult for them to do and the story there is that good um, prevailed over evil which is a difficult element uh, or a difficult argument to do when you suppress any kind of minority no matter how hideous they look yeah it's an interesting narrative device because 
in the real world, most of our conflicts now are human against human, where we have so much common ground that we should look out for each other if we can do so. And in the case of the narrative, the orcs are sort of a narrative device, I think, for Sauron to have power and influence, like the men of the East as well, who fight for him, where you could break down the nuance. And if you knew enough backstory for them, then you may care about their situation more. And this ties back into your point initially, where oftentimes you have a hero and then you have some side characters. And because the hero gets more character development, you tend to focus more on what they're learning, what their outcome is, and you become more emotionally attached to them as well. And this is, uh, I think, the foundation of the mechanics of empathy. For us to be empathetic and compassionate, it helps us to know the feelings of the other people. And in the case of Lord of the Rings, we know a lot less of what the orcs think and feel about the world and their perspective than we do men, elves, dwarves, and hobbits. So we're cheering for the characters that we understand the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it's always a matter of who tells the story and who decides who to be the good part and who to be the bad part. Um, it's interesting that there's this saying that history is written by the winners. So when you think back at um, different war stories. Can you uh, remember a war that has been won by the evil side? Mm, I think conquests as a general progression tend to be largely evil in nature. If you have some inhabitants of a realm and you have military dominance and you go in and you crush and you control the area i think most people would agree that is usually a, an act that is more evil than it is good but by the end of it when an empire has been established such as the roman empire we tend to romanticize that and think about that achievement positively even though though the process of that involved a lot of killing and war and things like that so yeah, it's a, a really interesting and deep progression of the achievements versus the wickedness. And we usually don't have enough time to break down every single thing that happened, and we don't have the evidence to lay out everything that happened. But I think a lot of victors in war technically were evil by virtue of bringing war to someone else. Yeah, I would totally agree. But still, the story that we're told is good prevailed over evil. We, we um, brought them freedom or prosperity. We, um, what we did was good, maybe not why we were doing it, but the result of it was good, which is a difficult distinction to make between, um, again, coming back to um, the means versus the ends. Yeah, there's overlap between uh, Rome conquering and... Europe conquering with imperialism in it's the perspective of the people who think of themselves as civilized and advanced, bringing that to savages and barbarians who are not as advanced. Also sometimes bringing better religion or the true religion to them as well. And feeling like that you're the savior by virtue of freeing them from 
their ignorance and their traditions which are inferior to yours yeah um, there's a really interesting uh, thing that Oleron said um, a quote out of the life of Brian what have the Romans ever done for us well there's the aqueduct medicine roads philosophy safety in the hinterlands but beside that uh, <laughs> th this is something that reflects on what we talked about uh, Confucius and the necessity of a stable society for everyone to prosper where they um, whenever there was a war in China which happened all too often it, it made it difficult to keep up the big infrastructural projects they had um, that were designed to keep people fed which are which is arguably more important than for one or the other ruler to get a bit more power and a bit more land. Yeah, so there's um, three to four limiting factors to our interpretations of um, different stories that I want to bring up. These are all somewhat newish and what i mean by that is they're younger than 200 years old so they're in our modern understanding of of language and of storytelling um, the first of which is wittgenstein he was a austrian philosopher that was in England, where he wrote his philosophy, and he was on about the su subjective nature of language, and he talked about toothache a lot. He seemed to have some tooth problems, or I'm not sure what was the problem there. So he talked about toothache in a matter that when you grow up, um, you your tooth hurts at some point, and you point to your tooth, and your mother tells you where well you're having a toothache. But you, and you might see other people that kind of have that mimic of their teeth hurting, but you never get an understanding of how the other person feels when their tooth aches um, in comparison to how you feel when it happens. And the, the point he was trying to make was just that language as we know it is super subjective, not only when it comes to tooth aches, but about almost anything, whether how we perceive color or how we perceive feelings, that all of this is something that is really subjective in nature. And we, we although we can make it a, an overarching, um, can say something overarching about what it is like to have toothache, we will never know how someone else feels when they're experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Um, another interesting concept is from Barthes, and he talks about the death of the author. So when you have someone writing a story, they um, more often than not um, intentionally put meaning in there. They intentionally put a moral of the story in there. And what Barthes was talking about is that moral the, the author put in there, is it the right thing or is it the important thing to take out of the book or is the subjective interpretation by the reader what's most important so 
doesn't matter if the author is still alive and able to defend um, what he was writing and why he was writing it, or is it all about the the subjective interpretation of the reader? There are different schools of thought with this. I actually dated someone for a while who had the perception that the artist's intention doesn't matter and that it's the reader or the listener's uh, perception that matters the most. And you could say by the process of time, the readers and the listeners outlive the author as death of the author suggests. So that is going to exist more and more people are going to have their own perspective. The author can give commentaries and stuff to try and explain what they were getting at with that or what influenced them to write things a certain way or what they wanted to get across to the viewer or the listener. But ultimately, interpretation is a really big part of how art is consumed. And that's a a personal thing and also a community thing. So your perceptions of media are based on how you respond to it, just how you feel when you watch a movie or read a book or whatever. And then oftentimes the reviews the critiques and things like that that we read also influence our perception. Sometimes people love stuff and that kind of builds up the hype for you loving it as well. Sometimes you read a really good critique of something and it kind of kills the enjoyment for you. Sometimes people hate it and you love it and you think that's cool and edgy for you to be unique and enjoy something that's not super popular. So there are a bunch of different forces, I think, that shape what we tend to like and how interpretation relates to the original text or source material. Yeah. This reminds me of a critique I read recently, uh, and it's about Terry Pratchett, the author of Discworld. And the, the author of the article was on about how we, we talk about Pratchett, about this really beautiful writer and what he did. And he thinks that all of this is horseshit and that he doesn't deserve the the kind of recognition he has. And he had never read anything uh, Pratchett ever wrote in order to form that opinion, which was something he got blasted for in the comments. And I found really funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's the the... The author had died, and in order to interpret it, you don't even have to read what he wrote, which is kind of an interesting idea, I think. So you, there's there's nothing stopping you from commenting on something you have no clue about. There's nothing to stop you from commenting on something. So comment whatever you want on YouTube videos, even if you didn't watch the video. I feel like I get a minor taste of this. You cut out for a little bit, so I kind of took over. Right. But they, uh, sometimes you'll have a title or something for your YouTube video, and you'll get comments on your YouTube video that are simply a response to the title and clearly don't reference how the content played out. And sometimes the title is the beginning of the story rather than the middle or the end of it. And if you're just basing your reaction to it based on that anchor, the title or the cover of the book, you're going to miss a lot of the depth of what happened, maybe most of it or all of it. Yeah. Um, yeah there's an interesting coming on, uh, comment on the death of the author, and it's the kind of shift um, 
between the um, social perception of it and the um, subjective um, perception of what he wrote. And the as we as the story grow older, we a lot of time miss the context something was wrote in. Uh, a good example here would be 1984, which was written post World War II and was a kind of reflection on that. And so we we lose a sense of why some someone wrote what he wrote and start to just interpret what they wrote um, within the current day structure, which is helpful in some ways, but not helpful in other ways. Um, so there's two more. Um, Derrida, he, this is um, postmodernism at its finest. He really talked about the, the deconstruction of meaning and how we, we put meaning into things that ought not have meaning or put the wrong kind of meaning into things. And he was really good at, at picking stories apart and giving them a whole different meaning, which is something interesting to look into if you ever want to um, blow the stories you already know out of proportion and see them in a whole different way. Um, similar to, to what I did with the story of the poor orcs that are just um, the, the, the anti-heroes They're fighting for their the place story. in the world. Exactly. So, so again, the, the kind of perspective that, that changes the story, which is really interesting. So meaning is something that we attach a lot to, but meaning is not as um, clear cut as we think of it to be. And one who comments on this the best was Nietzsche when he wrote Beyond Good and Evil, where he just really took apart the notion of good and evil, how useful is it, and talking about everything that where it's not useful to think of it as good or evil but it's just, it's ambivalent and it's the, the notion of thinking about it in terms of good and evil is hurting us uh, a lot more than it serves us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's about all I have to say in terms of different kind of myths and um how they're structured and the kind of effect they're having on us. So I want to really open up the floor to be able to go a bit more in depth about specific ideas and stories we tell each other and to to just have a discussion about what that means and what it could mean or should mean. Um, So I'm not sure if you have something or if we wanna uh, have people in chat come up with suggestions about what we could talk about the point lower than that that you have about autobiographical stories i thought about somewhat uh, leading up to this basically if your life was a story what kind of story would it be and what kind of character would you be in it i think usually people put themselves in the protagonist seat because you are the agent of your life of all the things in the world, you have the most influence over your own decisions. So kind of that narrative and how it develops over time. For me personally, I tended to be pretty attached to the 
pilgrim kind of role, pilgrim and messenger and diplomat. So socially speaking, I, I'm trying to seek truth. I'm trying to make sense of my surroundings. I'm willing to go out of the main lanes of progression through society. You could say the like childhood school into university, into your kind of standard working career, and then being a, a good citizen doing your diligence and pulling your weight economically. I jumped off of that with going into full-time poker after university. So that was kind of my pilgrimage, my quest for a different kind of path that could give me a different perspective that might be valuable to some other people. And that's how Neuro was born, where I saw the demand and the desire and the usefulness of mindfulness and understanding your mindset and the way you perceive things and how your emotions affect you so that you can, for one, improve your results in the things you're doing. And for two, uh, seek greater peace of mind and also be a better person through that process by building character and learning from your experiences and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting how religion was a big part of my life growing up. I tend to have a lot of Christian themes still in how I think about stuff, even though I'm not uh, still practicing that belief system. I think there are a lot of elements of religion and culture that oftentimes are part of secular culture as well. It's not just strictly either you're a Christian or you're not a Christian or you're this or that. These traditions are a big part of how we perceive stuff like forgiveness, sacrifice, fellowship, community, things like this. It's all woven together and having a sort of personal autobiography oftentimes serves as a useful shortcut for the framework of our reality. Reality that's all around us is very complex. There's so much going on. It's very chaotic. It's really a mess. And having a story that you can tell about yourself and where you've come from and what you're about and what you're striving to do, I think is really important for just uh, maintaining your bearings and your own personal uh, moral and like career compass. Yeah. Yeah. As we talked about all these stories that kind of explain the world to us and how we ought to act or ought not to act based on different examples, we do the same thing when it comes to ourselves. We explain ourselves to us in ways that are more or less useful. So, for example, if um not going to bed on time, I, I just um, tell myself that I'm that kind of person that doesn't need as much sleep, which is arguably not true. Or I tell myself <laughs> that uh, I, I don't want to get to sleep now because I'm just rebellious against the system and um, old people go to sleep at 12 o'clock in the evening. So these are all kinds of stories that might have some truth to them. But the question is, are they useful to me? Do they, um, do they give me the right incentives on how to live my life? And I'd argue they don't. On the other hand, that they're just the stories I've had in my mind for all this time. So it's really, really difficult to break out of them. 
Um, one really interesting concept, and I think you can um, probably relate to that when you wrote your book. Um, how many times did you write and rewrite it? So it was article by article, and I wrote them initially the first time when they were put into the weekly all in some of them were written after to like round off the the idea of the path but i would say for each one the current version i would say on average there have been like two or three uh almost full renditions of the article concept so i wrote the initial one it was brushed up a little bit and then it was edited by Packed Facts, and then it was rewritten by me again, sometimes from scratch, sometimes some light edits. Yeah. So you'd agree that what you first put down on the page is just a, a, a first draft of the kind of all the ideas that you want to put in there, and you're not putting as much detail onto how you say it, but more so want to bring across what you want to say? Sometimes it's that. I think the main development for this book and also my development as a writer is writing for yourself from your own perspective in a way that you understand versus writing in a way that is accessible to a global readership. So people who are coming from different backgrounds, different perspectives, sometimes different languages, and they speak English as a second or third language, being able to communicate the concept clearly to them. And that involves, for one, understanding the essence of what you're trying to say, and also for two, being pretty direct and straightforward about it. My first drafts for a lot of the articles were very lofty and flowery. Actually, this quote by... Uh, Campbell here, myths orient people to the metaphysical dimension, explain the origins and the nature of the cosmos, validate social issues, and on the psychological plane address themselves. Like it's so jam-packed with psychobabble that you would have to basically take a few minutes to find all the different terms and then think phrase by phrase what each phrase means. It's just a super heavy weighty sentence that if you say it really fast and then you move on to the next thing, I feel like you're missing a whole lot of opportunity for just establishing one or two clear things. So the final version, and as I try to write moving forward, brevity is the soul of wit. Being able to get the idea, understand what its essence is, and deliver that in a pretty punchy and clear way is super valuable, especially in the information age where we have all this information around us all the time. I don't necessarily need to have a really flowery way of expressing what I'm saying. I want to understand the point I'm trying to get across, and I want to deliver that using the English language as effectively as I can. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of how you describe this, I'm, I'm not going to use the, the same terminology as I would use when I do my first draft. So when I do a first draft of something, um, I just put everything down that I feel is important. The language doesn't need to be at a point where anyone else um, would be able to make sense of it. It's just for me that I kind of have a, a overarching map of everything I actually want to talk about. And what I call it, or what it's normally called, is a shitty first draft of something, where it's not meant something to you, you go out with, but it's just something for you to, to 
to first off be writing rather than just thinking about things. So you just put the first things that come to mind and put them on a paper of paper in order to have this shitty first draft. And I find this concept really useful because we do shitty first drafts on everything. We do a lot of shitty first drafts when we think about things. So imagine you um, go into a coffee shop and you order your coffee and the barista is really rude. And your shitty first draft might be that this is just... Um, someone you don't like or a, 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 a coffee shop you'd never go to again because the barista was rude. So the shitty first draft is something you made made up that not necessarily is true or not. It's just the first thing that came to mind for you on explaining the situation. And when you do writing, you go over the shitty first draft and you rewrite it and you rewrite it and you rewrite it again in order to, to make it clear, to make it um, meaningful, in order to, to, to say it in the correct way. And when we think about things, we often don't do this. So we have a shitty first draft of why something happens or why someone is treating us shittily. And we think of this as being the, the true reason behind it, other than questioning our shitty first draft and saying, well, maybe he just had a bad day, or maybe he, he burned himself on the coffee machine just um, half a minute earlier. It's There's so many explanations, and we don't take them into account when we make our shitty first draft. We just um, think of the first things that come to mind and, and make sense out of the situation in that way. And it's not useful for the most part, and it's not um, a good reflection on, on how things uh, are. And we also do the same thing when we think about ourselves. And here it gets even more problematic. As I said, when I don't go to bed um, at the quote-unquote right time, my shitty first draft is, well, I don't want to go to bed now. And that's as good enough an explanation for it as I um, can make up in a moment. But it's not it doesn't solve the problem and it's it's easy to just take that first draft and roll with it other than just questioning it and be like all right is this the it's easy to take that first draft and hello yeah it would only cut out for about two seconds all right but yeah i the most recent shitty first draft that i did was the battle speech for in control yeah and uh i would like to quote charles dickens with this he said write drunk edit sober <laughs> meaning in the essence of alcohol i think involves a lot of reducing your inhibitions whenever you're writing something and you think it's important you don't want to mess it up so a lot of times people won't write because they want to write the finished product the first time, which is not going to happen. It just doesn't happen. Usually you just want to get the ball rolling, create some basic outline or skeleton of what's going on, and then you flesh it out and you're kind of looking at the shape of it and seeing if it makes sense and how you're going to revise it. But getting started is a really big step. And this kind of ties into uh, first drafts, not just of storytelling, but also of building the narrative of how you live your life. And an example would be exercise. 
your first time starting a new type of exercise, if you're trying to get more fit and be more active, it's going to be shitty. It's going to suck. Your first time going for a run, if you haven't run before, your feet are going to hurt, your knees are going to hurt, you're going to feel winded, your heart's going to be beaten, and your arms are going to be spaghetti. It's going to be tough. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And you could say that an amazing marathon runner started running at some point, and the first runs weren't nearly as glamorous as those super fancy times that were posted later on. So getting started and having a, a bad first draft, I think, is totally okay. Totally fine and okay. He's going to take a bio break, BRB. That's fine. Start with the skeleton. Add the meat and then the superficial parts. I mean, this is all kind of metaphor for describing it, but basically getting started with the process is oftentimes the most difficult step. You can start with an idea and they've actually studied this a little bit in psychology Telling people about your idea sometimes stops you from following through with it because you get excited at how impressed they are with this idea and you get a little bit of reward if they say, hey, that's a really good idea. And many times we pursue things with the reward in mind. And if we've already gotten some reward, sometimes we'll stop and we save ourselves the difficulty of actually putting in the work and doing it. So be mindful of that as well. A lot of putting the work in is frustrating and it's oftentimes dull or boring. So being able to persevere through those difficulties to get to the finished product rather than expecting the process to be glorious the whole way. It's usually not. And uh, <clears throat> I showed some people some old neuro YouTube videos. There's the neuro Ronin rogue and raconteur video where it's very Monty Python. I'm in the forest with no shirt and a beard and a dagger from Spain. And I have Sun Tzu art of war in one hand and I'm reading through it with a silly accent and jumping around and being a goober. The audio of the video is pretty bad. It's just not great production value. The video is kind of grainy. The acting is questionable, but it started that process of making video content, just going out there in the wild and trying to do something funny or silly. And how if I didn't do that draft, the later videos that I would consider to be significantly better in many ways wouldn't have happened. So... I might almost say that the shitty first draft might be the most important draft. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. It's, it's really important to do shitty first drafts because it's what gets you out there. Um, as we talked about, the um, the process of moving a mountain is done by, by picking up one stone and moving it. And the sh shitty first draft is what allows you to, to pick up that first stone so it's not something we we should hold back on it's good to go out and to try to fail with grace as we talked about before um but it's Don't also important back. to question it samurai jack and what, what does it 
what does the shitty first draft of an explanation mean to us and how how to interpret it and then make a better version of it i think there are some examples that were shitty for most of the drafts and were barely saved in the final one there's a documentary on the star wars films and how the original trilogy was really disorganized and kind of bad even through the filming stage and i think it's called like it was saved in the edit or something where in the editing stage they had enough raw material that with a lot of really genius moves they could make it into a really epic landmark production but before then it still wasn't looking super great so that can be an example to embolden you and give you some courage you might have a shitty first second third fourth fifth and sixth draft but if you make it to the 10th draft it might be amazing it's tough to tell because sometimes that progression of refinement isn't purely linear where you don't just have this one pass at it and it's better and then another pass at it and it's better sometimes you get stuck for a little bit and you're spinning your wheels for a while but if you keep at it, you can get some traction and move forward and kind of break into some really awesome territory. Yeah. There's a nice quote of Edison. He said that he didn't fail 10,000 times. It's just that it took him 10,000 tries to get it right. Yeah, or you could say that it was 9,999 ways not to make a light bulb. Or whatever he was trying to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah, it's science. Important. Sorry, science is largely about that process as well of ruling out possibilities. And you could even say scouting in StarCraft is a big part of ruling out possibilities. I think Day Nine is the guy who first said that, where you don't necessarily see the entire map of everything the opponent is doing. But if you see enough pieces and you add up the value of those pieces, you can infer what's missing and what might be on the map in other places that you didn't specifically see. Yeah, it gives you enough information to, to map out what, what could be happening and what the opponent is thinking, mm -hmm. which is a move when you're a Protoss player like me. Yeah. <laughs> For ire. Um, yeah, um, how are we doing on time? I think we're at a pretty good spot. This is two hours and a half of stream up time, which with our intro is probably about two hours 15 of this podcast, which I think is a pretty good amount. Um, I haven't consumed a podcast of this size before, so I think one point of feedback we can get from the listeners is do you like this uh, volume size because i feel like we got to get into the weeds quite a bit and focus on some of the detail as well as getting the big picture so i like this duration from my perspective in conversation with you uh, on the podcast and does this work as a, a single thing would you listen to this in two sittings or one sitting I'm curious for feedback with this because I'm not really knowledgeable about uh, what podcast listeners want from that experience. 
Yeah, this is like the long form class. If you've had university classes before, I've had some that are 50 minutes to an hour, and that's a block size you can have, which is pretty nice and fresh. And then you have the marathon ones, which are around three hours, which can still be really valuable. If you had a course like that, you might have one of your marathon classes once or twice a week, as opposed to three to four times a week. <clears throat> yeah, this was a really good session. The other ones are on YouTube, which might get ripped to a podcast later, but I'd be really happy to do the other ones in this format as well. Good job with the layout and leading the lecture here, Eche for Tim. Thank you. Yeah, there's a comment on not spending enough time on each character. Um, so the idea of this lecture was to just giving a overarching description of what's happening in terms of mythopoetics. And um, open to, to diving a lot more in depth. I think we could build characters. in a future session on more of the character concept. So we touched on it some, but as a personal exercise, I think it would be cool as a challenge to say, what are the 10 most impactful characters that you know from storytelling and media and why they're the most impactful to you? how they maybe represent elements of who you are or who you strive to be and the situations that maybe you remember of them. I think that could be pretty fun as well. Maybe even for some viewer interaction, we could have a sort of Google form or whatever, where people could insert some of their own favorite characters and a brief description as to why they're your favorite. Yeah. yeah, this was mythopoetics. It wasn't specifically drilled on characters, but I think for a future episode together, that would be a really good topic to tackle as well. Yeah. So for me, it's always a bit different because every time I kind of uh, come up with the idea of a lecture, I prepare it. And then I, I always think, well, but we kind of would need to talk about this first and we need to talk about this first. And um, so last time we, we talked about the whole of um, epistemology and to just boiling it down step by step in order to, to put meaning into to the things we're talking about and to have an understanding of it for the listener. Uh, I think we're doing a good job at kind of boiling it down and when you listen to all of it, you, you get a step-by-step -step narration down to why are we talking about what um, Jabba the Hutt did and why it was good or bad and why golden bikinis are awesome <laughs> Jabba the Hutt Do you have a just for a quick question and answer do you have a favorite Star Wars character or Jedi or whatever oh, Star Wars is a bit of a um, triggering um, thing for me not because of everything they did with it later on but I I'm really at odds with the Jedi's as a whole as a whole because they're this all-powerful um, quote-unquote good being and they decide to stay out of politics and economics which I just find utterly stupid so if if you're trying to do good, you try you should do it as well as you can, and this means involving yourself in politics and economics, and not just staying out of it and letting things go awry uh, as a bystander. So um, yeah, Jedi's are kind of weird. 
I do like he's Jedi critical Order. of the Jedi Order. Look at this guy. <laughs> he's a non-believer. I see. Hmm. That's unfortunate. Uh, have you heard of the Old Republic lore? Um, like Knights of the Old Republic games, and there's the Old Republic MMO. I've heard a it's bit. It's more of it. about how the Republic was established and whatnot. Yeah, I, I know a bit of it, but it's not something I really dove into a lot. So, yeah, I I can't really I think, speak about it. I think from a narrative capacity, it's one of the absolute best, and is definitely my favorite part of Star Wars lore. The movies are fun, but they don't give you as much depth of the world and also the uh, kind of nuance of how decisions shape a Jedi or a Sith character. So in the Knights of the Republic games and the Old Republic MMO, your character has its own light side, dark side score, where a lot of the decisions you make in conversation give you either light side points or dark side points, but you're not committed to necessarily being on either side. You could be directly in the middle. And that's a really fun aspect of shaping the story of your character is that many of those decisions matter and they shape you as a character, the perception of other characters looking at you. And you also get to be uh, critical of the different ideologies of the Jedi you meet and the Sith you meet and the people who are kind of gray in the middle. Yeah. I think that this is a really interesting tool of storytelling that is only developed with video games where it's um, not that you follow a given narrative but you can choose your own narrative and can get influenced by these different ideologies and it it reflects really nice on how we live our life and there's different people trying to influence us and that the emphasis on the main character being us and their decision making is something that you can trans. I guess he's or- saying the emphasis on the main character. You said the Can emphasis on the main character. I'm guessing. Yeah, the the emphasis on the main character to to, to be the one um, to make decisions and think about their decisions. Um, it is what should really resonate with the player and it's something that's really hard to bring in a story. So I think video games are really good at, at telling moral stories and, and putting the weight on the decisions we're making. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. This was a really fun topic. I think it's a uh super relatable one as well and i think it opens a lot of avenues for chasing different angles here and this also kind of leads back into the format of this segment this is basically philosopher for laypersons this is not a philosophy fourth year phd master's course we're on twitch.tv and i'm a starcraft streamer trying to branch out with some stuff that i think is really meaningful and valuable to myself and other people. So yeah, it's a work in progress and it's also more for the casual person as opposed to the expert. And part of this can be shaped by where we want to go with it as well. So if you find elements of this that are particularly intriguing or you want to know more about that, you could tweet at me. I don't know, uh, Echi Fatim, do you have a Twitter? 
I have a Twitter, but I only look at it when I wrote someone that I need to know something of. So I look at it like once every three months. But I can uh, not even. Well, you can give a contact well. email or something as well. Yeah. If people wanted to. Yeah, I had a, with a, a, a couple of people reaching out to me via the messaging on on Twitch. So if there's any question or any insights you want to share, I'm always open to that. I like constructive feedback more so than people just yelling at me. I think it's kind <laughs> of normal. But yeah, always open to, to new ideas and to have good conversation with people. Hell yeah. Well, I'm super glad that we started this segment um, quite a few episodes ago. We've been doing a lot of these sort of impromptu, so we don't have set dates. It's kind of based on how long it takes for Eche Fatum to prep the amazing lectures and then booking a time with my very irregular and erratic uh, stream up times. <laughs> so your uh, patience is very appreciated here. I would like to work more scheduling into the content and everything. Uh, in the next week, we have the Classic WoW launch, which is kind of a landmark gaming event of epic proportions that a lot of people are diving into, which I will as well. That's probably going to be about a week of kind of full-on dedicated time. And then after that, I'll be looking to find a balance between StarCraft, which is my main and uh, most successful form of content, with some dedicated slots for World of Warcraft, dedicated slots for these podcasts and philosophy discussions with Edge of Fatum. The Agent Smith content as well would fit really well in the podcast form too. So we're looking to do some organization after this uh, classic wild bonanza has settled down a little bit. But yeah, thank you very much, Eche Fatum, for your time. Thank you, Cobra Venom, for getting the ball rolling here with this podcast format and try to be upright and righteous in your life and mindful of your decisions and your thoughts. Thank you, Eche Fatum, for everything. Thank you, and have a lovely stream. Cheers, dude. Bye, everyone. Later. Later.